Okay, it's been a few weeks since we dropped our last episode. We've been a bit busy with working on our other podcasts that we produce, The Raw Hospitality Show, as well as working on what we do for our day job, which is helping clients build brands, build websites and develop applications. We've had our hands full over the Christmas and New Year period. So things are settling down a bit now, so we're back, hopefully, onto schedule, and we've got some really interesting guests coming up. Today, this week's guest, I'll introduce in a moment. Next week, we have New York-based Scottish photographer and recovered drug addict Graham McIndoe and his wife, Susan Stellan. Coming up after that, we have Vanessa Barboni-Halleck, founder of sustainable fashion brand Another Tomorrow. So in the meantime, hope you enjoy the show. And just a reminder, if you are enjoying the show, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple iTunes or share with some friends. If there's someone you want us to interview, we're open to the serendipity of recommendations from our listeners. Just DM us on Instagram or send us a message on the website. I place more faith in natural solutions to everything, all these challenges. The reason being that there is already like an inherent level of complexity in natural systems that... um, are unrivaled in human systems, and that complexity is its resilience. This week's guest, biologist, TV producer, presenter, public speaker, voiceover artist, writer and mother is Gillian Burke, a second-generation Kenyan who's lived a life in transition, or as she refers to, in a state of liminality. In this broad-ranging interview, Gillian deconstructs the complexity of her racial ambiguous Creole identity. Part West Indian, part Sri Lankan, Gillian was born in Kenya, grew up in Vienna and studied and settled in the UK, where she's built a successful career in broadcasting with the BBC. Gillian recounts her early memories of always feeling an outsider, navigating change and uncertainty, both in Kenya and Austria. She describes how her love of the outdoors developed, being comfortable in nature, and how she developed her environmental consciousness. She explains why the experience of growing up in the global south and the lack of buffer between environmental issues and the impact of home life, as well as witnessing the exploitation of nature and the environment and the marginalised populations led her to develop her thirst for social justice and building a career in nature and environmental broadcasting. From 40 minutes in, Julian explains why she feels we are, in many developed nations, lacking humility as we face the humbling impact of the COVID virus. We discuss how our path to progress is unsustainable, the climate crisis the urgency to act and the importance to look for natural solutions and our interconnectedness to nature's matrix. Gillian discusses the regenerative power of soil, indigenous knowledge and wisdom and solutions that could pull us back from climate calamity. Finally, Gillian explains how she is now focused on connecting the big existential issues facing us to what we are actually doing in our homes and how we live day by day. I hope you're inspired to follow the environmental passion and purpose of Gillian Burke. Gillian, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. And actually, I should, well, you kind of invited me, but obviously yeah. I got picked. Exactly. <laughs> By Julia, Julia Black. Yeah. So it's a very cool concept. And a, and a sort of very serendipitous way to end up on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, it's lovely. And I've been looking forward to this for some time. And it's been a while getting here. So let's jump in. I normally start in a very sort of predictable, linear way where we always ask our guests about their upbringing and their parental impact before we get into their education, their work life. But we had this conversation last week, an introduction chat, and you used a word during that conversation called liminal which got me thinking that 
Maybe the best way to approach this is to start from a different perspective and focus in on that word, a word that I'd never actually use other than the, in the context of the, the broader use in terms of subliminal, um, particularly subliminal mm. advertising. But the word on its own, when you, you mentioned it and you were talking about the living in this transitional period and reflecting on your life and where it is at the moment, it did make me wonder in relation to who you are, because I've listened to some of your podcast interviews and I've heard you describe yourself before, that you're a biologist, you're a TV producer, you're a presenter, a public speaker, a voiceover artist, a writer, Mm -hmm. a mother, all these uh, uh, things. It's hard to put you in a box. But when you mentioned liminal, it did did make me wonder whether we should think about it in relation to the definition of the world is that it's a a transitional or initial stage of a process. Mm -hmm. And one... So one part is, are you at that point in your life now? And secondly, if we look at it in relation to your broader journey and in terms of you, when it's applied, the words applied to a liminal being, the, the way I looked at it as the description was a liminal being or liminal beings are those that cannot easily be placed into a single category of existence. And that, that definitely seems to be you when we look at those multiple descriptions and the journey you've taken through your life. So maybe we should just start by you reflecting on Um, a constant process of transition through your life because when I look back and and read about where you were born again it's not a traditional upbringing in being born in one place staying in one town or one country there's been transition throughout your life so I'd love you just to reflect on that and just give give me your um, perspective yeah well, first of all, I'm so pleased that I'm not the only one who hadn't come across or necessarily used the word liminal before. I like words and I like language and I love the, the kind of trying to find new ways to put forward ideas and concepts and sort of try and encapsulate even feelings. So I, I love it when I come across a new word. And this word came to me via my cousin who lives in Australia. So if you think my whole family were, you know, share the same background obviously we're family but we're a very mixed family we're creoles basically from the indian ocean and so my cousin who is he he's in australia now but he has the same background that i do which is not really being able to put a flag in the ground and say this is where i come from so he works with remote aboriginal communities and he gave me this word. He gifted this word to me because we were talking about all kinds of stuff. We're having a big old catch up. And yeah, he said, yeah, Jillian, what, liminal, that's, that's a word that you might find useful. And I felt like, what? Only now, after 40 plus years of living, I've been given a word to help me pin some sort of sense of identity around. So in answer to your question, this, this idea of being someone who exists between states isn't easily identified is something I think I've probably had with me all my life. So I'm Kenyan. That's what I say, because that's where I'm born. My parents were both from mixed backgrounds, mixed heritage. My dad was half West, well, from Trinidad. His his father came from Trinidad and his mom was from Seychelles, which is tiny islands in the Indian Ocean. And my mom, her dad was from Sri Lanka. And her mom was also from Seychelles. So they met in Kenya. They were both born in Kenya. So I'm a second generation Kenyan, East African. And by the time I showed up, we just called ourselves Kenyan Creoles, of which there, there's enough of us to form a community. So we're a tiny, small, little ethnic group of essentially just people who are very, very mixed heritage. And it's in a sense, we're collectively, I guess, 
people like me are, particularly in this part of the world, will be a product of the kind of British empire and colonialism and all of that stuff. The, the reason why my two grandfathers from opposite ends of the planet ended up in Kenya was because it was a British East Africa back then, and mm -hmm. they went there to work and met my grandmothers, and the story goes on. So by the time I sort of showed up, it was Kenya was, I think, about 15 years into its independence. And... I I mean, I, it's so funny now, like I can feel, I can still conjure up in, in an instant that energy that the country had, mm -hmm. which was just this kind of, there was this like optimism for the future. There was so much possibility and there was real national pride. The memories were brutally clear in terms of the struggle for independence And we were riding collectively, all of us, this wave wave of African pride and black pride. So for me, one of the first painful, if I'm honest, things I bumped up against was when I first started going to school. So this is, I guess I was about five years old. And I was told I wasn't really Kenyan. And uh. I came back home really deeply hurt and cut by this suggestion. Quick question. Was that which part of Kenya? Um, was it Mombasa or Nairobi? Or Yeah, I was born in Nairobi. That's where I grew up as okay. a capital city. And, and was, it because um, of your, was it because of your name that they were able to identify you as not being Kenyan? Or was it because of um, skin color? No, I think it's because of the way I look. Because it, it, weirdly, after all this time, someone like Kamala Harris comes along and it's instantly made it easy for me to explain. It's not uh -huh. quite my story, but almost my story, this kind of Asian African heritage. So what's missing in, in, in her story is that there's, there's more. There's this Creole heritage from Seychelles. But, you know, my kind of mixed It's just a mashup. That's all I can say, you know. So it was more because of just the way I looked. If anything, I look more Ethiopian than Kenyan. So if I go to Ethiopia, people start speaking to me in Amharic, and then I'll I'll look at them blankly, and then they'll <laughs> get confused and maybe a little. Oh, so you don't want to like be one of us now? So I'm like, no, it's because I'm actually not Ethiopian, and they and so the, I had to get used to being an outsider from a very early age, and then. I didn't just get used to it. I think it became my ticket. I became really comfortable with it. And then I started to realize that if I, if I worked it, that in the right way, I actually, I think I got access in a way that might not have been so easy if I was easily placed. Or at mm -hmm. least that's the story I tell myself. You know? so, so yeah, for me, that feeling is almost, I've carried that from, from almost day one very early memories. But like I said, it's something that I've revisited. It's almost like I do these passes, circle round and come back to this question of identity, depending on what's going on in the world around me. And with every decade that's gone by, the, the kind of zeitgeist, I guess, if you like, the collective consciousness around identity and, and history and what it all means and how we all got here keeps changing. And mm. I would say that is being rewritten quicker and quicker and quicker and being revisited and being questioned. And every time that goes, I have to do another pass around, okay, who am I? And how do I fit into this picture? But actually, as I get older, I think I feel less alone in that. And I think there's more and more people. It's really obvious, actually, to me that there's a whole bunch of people like me that have, have yet to find our place, like really mm -hmm. find our place. 
there's a lot in there. I suppose first thing, just to for my own clarity, that term Creole. I mean, I've always associated it with Louisiana and food and being in the West Indies. But you're saying it's East Indian and from Seychelles that it originates. From the Indian Ocean. I don't know if it originates there, but it's a word that in Mauritius and in Seychelles, they speak Creole, which is essentially Uh like a patois based on French rather than English. Right. And the people, we call ourselves Creoles. So I think the word just means you're mixed and it applies. So that's what I mean. There's in the whole diaspora, there's, it's complex. And I think when we talk about identity and particularly black identity, African identity, it, the, the kind of meaning around that changes depending on the context and who you're mm-hmm. talking to and who's in the conversation and who's in the room. So I'm a black woman. If if I have to just go right here is here it is. That's who I am. But when I'm given an opportunity like this to drill into that and go, well, what does that actually mean for me personally? That story gets quite convoluted and complex. And you know, um, at an early age, when you, you described yourself going to school and people saw you as an outsider, not being Kenyan. I mean, that's when children face that level of adversity and make them feel rejected and have a deep psychological impact on them. You clearly embraced it and have shown versatility and agility to sort of use that, let's say, that that liminal space, let's call it, to embrace these situations. And then when you moved to, I think it was to Vienna and then ultimately to the UK, is it something you felt comfortable with even at that early age or did it... Did it hurt? Did it get to you? And if it did, how did you deal with it? I mean, I definitely remember being upset. And my mum remembers me coming back, being upset. And that was the beginning, I guess, for her and my dad to help me understand my heritage, Mm -hmm. which was so complicated. And it's almost like I was sort of given the story piece by piece. And this is how I feed it out as well. I mean, I've, I've given you like the quickest kind of pricey I can give you mm-hmm. of, of the, the lineage that I come from. Like as far back as we can trace, every single generation on both sides, my maternal and paternal, as far as we can tell, have like crossed continents, crossed oceans. I, I always say sometimes willingly, you know, sometimes not so much. And I think it's only my Sri Lankan lineage that is possibly the ethnically the most um, straightforward story. Mm-hmm. But even that, I don't know for sure. So I think my parents had al- already been through this themselves because they're racially ambiguous too. And I think what also helped is that I think if, if you've not traveled to Kenya or been to that part of um, East Africa particularly, what can get lost is it's a really cosmopolitan place. Nairobi and Mombasa as well, but, you know, the other towns and cities. There's a real mix of people. It's, there's a lot of different ethnic tribes in Kenya. Plus, there's um, a whole mix of Asian communities from Sikh to Jain to Muslims to... There's traditionally, historically been Chinese, a lot of Chinese people in Kenya, especially now. Who else? Europeans. So even when I was growing up in Nairobi, there was already a real mix of people. 
and it was quite a cosmopolitan place. So while I did encounter this sort of questioning of, well, are you a quote unquote real Kenyan? We all got past that quite quickly because ultimately all us kids were almost certainly second, third generation, if not indigenous Kenyan. So there was there was sort of posturing and bantering and then we just got on with it. And Kenya is an interesting place because it observes Muslim public holidays, national and religious holidays. It observes Christian. So there's a much, to my mind anyway, a much greater awareness of multiculturalism than there is, say, in Britain. I mean, virtually everyone in Kenya will be multilingual just because they'll have their tri- a tribal language, English, Swahili, probably several other languages to that as well. And it's yeah, it's particularly generation now. They switch between languages. They understand some of the nuances of, of the humor and different cultures and backgrounds. And it's it's a very fast-paced, evolving culture and language as a result. So it never felt like I was the only one going through that. We were all learning about identity. And, and given that Kenya was such a young country as well back then, collectively, we were all finding identity So in a way, it wasn't a lonely experience. I just wanted to be Kenyan because I wanted to be part of that story of independence and national pride. And I had to find my place in it, which I did, definitely. You use the term racially ambiguous with the way you describe your parents of coming from different backgrounds. How did they impact on your self-belief and your worldview? How the balance Um, of influence? I think what, what I absorbed from that was just I I have learned that the stories of our family is where the identity comes from and my and that's where I ground and root myself because mm. I don't have an identity that really attaches itself to a flag or a piece of land or culture it, it's more to do with my family stories and I've realized that I enjoy hearing them I enjoy telling them and and I, th- I think that and food, definitely. Food is another big connector, you know, for me and for identity. So those two things are, are I guess, where I, I get a sense of belonging from. What about siblings? So I have an older brother. He's five years older than I am. And, that's, and it's just the two of us. We have a huge extended family because my dad was one of 13 children. My mom was one of... Wow. Is is one of seven, I think. Gosh, I should know. And they all had children. So we've got a lot of cousins and second cousins and stuff. And we're all more or less in touch. We've all scattered around the world. But we're pretty good at staying in touch. Well, your Zoom catch-ups must be interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we attempt that, but <laughs> it gets too chaotic. <laughs> Tell me about how that first major change in your life came about, the move from Kenya to Austria. Okay, so my mom worked for the UN by the time I was born. She's a journalist by training. And she was the first black female journalist in East Africa. So she had, before I was born, she had a a really successful career as a writer for the main newspapers. She reported on really wide sort of array of subjects and stories and events. But by the time I was born, I guess, She'd already had my brother, so there was a sense, I'm assuming, uh, that she needed a job that was less of her traveling around. So she started working for the UN, for the environmental program, which is headquartered in Nairobi, as the information officer. 
And, and yeah, so I guess I was around 10 years old when she got posted to Vienna instead to work with, on the UN Decade for Women. So, yeah, that was the beginning of a whole new kind of chapter. I was, so when the whole family, when we left, we were like, oh, we're going to go for a year because the posting was only for a year. And eight years later, we were still there. So I spent like my first 10 years of life, my early kind of childhood in Kenya and I, I would say I was pretty feral in the sense that if I wasn't in school and I wasn't going to town for whatever reason, just tagging along on shopping trips, I was outside. I loved, I just hated wearing shoes. So I was barefoot all the time. I was uh, always, Not in Austria, you wouldn't be. No, 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 not at all. But yeah, this is Kenya. So I'm just saying because of the contrast. I was outdoors pretty much all the time. I mean, there was no need, reason to be indoors during the day because there was no daytime TV, right? We had no devices and any distractions like that. So entertainment was outside. And, you know, for me, that was a absolutely like uh, incredible time. I had, I had such freedom. I had time and freedom. I never really recall anyone following me around and telling me what to do or telling me how I should spend my time. I just chose how I was going to spend my days. Obviously, this is outside of school. School is a whole different story. Um, and then from that, we moved to Vienna. And when we arrived in Vienna, it was uh, the mid-80s, and we were one of a handful of black families in the whole city. So from being in this big kind of multi, a very cosmopolitan African capital city, I moved to Vienna, this cultural capital of Europe. And it was, yeah. It was a contrast, you know, um, and it was also the, the winter we arrived was like, I think one of the harshest winters they'd had. It went down to minus 30 every single night. You know, this is um, Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but that was cold, basically, like really cold. And yeah, so I could sort of interpret so much more now looking back as with, mm -hmm. with my adult brain, with my child brain, you know, the things I really remember are... Obviously, the language was the first big barrier because nobody spoke English. I didn't speak German. So I had to figure out how to play very quickly with kids that I couldn't communicate with easily anyway. And weirdly, that was actually quite easy to overcome. I guess at 10 years old, you pick up languages quickly. Things I remember are being really, really surprised that white people did things like pick up the garbage do on the garbage rounds. You know, I've just never seen that. I'd never seen that. And I thought that was the craziest thing. What did you think happened? What I you... just, it wasn't just me. It was the whole family, like everyone. And like a few of the other African families that we met up with, we just thought we'd roll about laughing, think it was the craziest thing we'd ever seen. I look back now because, um, you know, now the, uh, the, the discussion around representation and diversity in media and being able to see like role models and people that look like you. I think back to that and I realized that is exactly what we're talking about, because I guess the reason why we all found it so incredulous and funny is we simply didn't have the expectation that was what white people would only do certain jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you're going to be like on the garbage rounds, you, you were always black. Mm -hmm. So I think that to me is like a very simple way of explaining that difference. If you never see someone doing a job, if they look like you or not, that builds an expectation of what sort of things people can aspire to. So obviously, I didn't know any of this back then. I was just just being a kid. But I look back to that and I think, wow, yeah, that's that was an interesting experience. 
But, you know, Vienna was like actually a great city to grow up in. I enjoyed it. I suppose that the culture, the culture shock of going from well, a warm environment, outdoor focused freedom to explore to a very different environment, both culturally, geographically, everything. Again, that transition sounds like you you made a fairly sort of straightforward integration into that environment that you embraced. Because I do wonder about your your level of curiosity, if whether that is a component part and you embracing change and ambiguity and uncertainty as you've navigated through these transitional periods. Do you know what, Mark? Honestly, to me, I think it's a survival mechanism. I don't know what the option would, the alternative is. I didn't have a choice in terms of my family moving to Austria. I didn't not not want to go, but it wasn't something I'd have chosen to do. But once I got there, like, what was the option? Not make friends and not live and not do all the things that a 10-year-old girl wants to do. So I, I, I sometimes, like you ask me that, I'm like, was it really as easy as I'm making it sound? Or am mm. I just like doing my classic, like I'm only going to remember the good bits? You know, there was a period when there wasn't a place. So there was an international school that I ended up going to eventually when after we moved, but there wasn't a place in my grade for me when we first moved to Austria. So for a time my parents decided they were just like oh she can just be at home and until that place comes up and so this is actually I don't have good memories like I what I mean is I don't have very hazy memories about this but now that you've questioned me it's it's brought it back Mm. what I do remember was hearing my mom and dad talking about me saying along the lines of maybe we just need to get her into any school. And they were obviously worrying about me. And then as they as I was aware that they were worrying about me, I was aware that I wasn't happy. You know, so I think I was lonely when we first moved because I just didn't have anyone to play with. And then I remember the first day when I went to the local Austrian school and I remember the playground. There was no greenery in the playground. I mean, Vienna is a beautiful city. It's not like this urban sprawl kind of thing. It was a very beautiful city. But for some reason, this particular school had a playground that was just like a kind of courtyard, just like tarmac and nothing much, no, no greenery around it. And I remember sort of trying to interact with some of the kids and struggling with language. But yeah, I'm trying to think, was that hard or not? I don't know. I, I think I'd maybe just kind of delete, delete, delete anything that I don't I mean, like. I mean, I can relate to, to a degree. I moved to school. I went to seven different schools. My father was in commercial airlines and the Navy as well and was always moving usually between England and Scotland but they did have one period in Iran I, I used to get into fights being Scottish and going to England usually mm, you, you, okay. you're an outsider there weren't many other Scottish people whether it was in Bedford or it was in Liverpool and then going back with a slightly English accent you were seen as an outsider as well so wherever you went I I certainly remember having having challenges but it usually ended up in a fight of some description yeah I always I certainly always felt an outsider I never felt completely accepted in any place so I don't know if it's uh I would ever say I could look back and not think about the the hard times of it so I don't know if it's maybe you just have some ability to embrace change and uncertainty and ambiguity and navigate it better yeah I think I, I don't think I hold on to the past for long 
if if I know it's not going to come back. Yeah, I think I, I do just roll along. Not not in a mercenary way. I don't like to sort of cleave off. I, I, I like to think back on things for sure. But, you know, I... I've had so many changes all you know from that point of moving to Austria that yeah I think that's just become a feature I've done, I never expect things to stay the same How did your interest in nature and the environment you mentioned that your mother took this environmental role at the UN and you I've heard you say once before you had an interest from an early age when did that first become apparent was it in Kenya or was it when you got slightly older it was, oh no, totally. It was, uh, you see, the thing is, I don't know if it was like, oh, I've become interested in it. I just was always outside. Mm-hmm. Very little of my play happened indoors. And being outside because of where we live, I wasn't like loping across the savannah grasslands with elephants and stuff around me. I mean, we did go camping. We would see that. My dad was amazing. He made a real effort to take us and make sure that me and my brother and and our cousins or whoever visited, he was like, he was so proud of um, like the natural heritage of Kenya. My dad loved it. And it was just, yeah, it was like, even now when I think about it, the excitement, for some reason, we always set off before first light. I don't know what this was about. It was insane. <laughs> like, there was no need for that, I'm sure. But I remember the excitement of being woken up and my dad already had the engines going and he was you know, checking the oil. And it was like this great big operation to get us all ready to go off on this trip. And the car was loaded. And there's all sandwiches that we ate before we'd even pulled out where the house was. I loved all of that. But even at home, like our house was part of like a, a new housing estate that built just after independence on this coffee plantation on the outskirts of Nairobi. So it wasn't like um, wild. It wasn't wilderness. It was sort of former agricultural land that was sort of um, in places planted. People were always growing even now, like if there's any place to plant vegetables, crops, maize or something, you'll see someone growing something. So mm. it wasn't that it was totally wild, but but it wasn't totally managed either. It was just this kind of in-between again, I guess, mm-hmm. of where it felt like nature was calling the shots or natural cycles and natural kind of systems were in charge rather than humans imposing how everything was going to look and feel. So that was the environment I grew up in. And so it was just by default that I felt comfortable in nature. I felt comfortable with being barefoot. I felt comfortable having thorns. That was a real feature, by the way, in Kenya of like constantly pulling thorns out of my feet and my shins (laughs) and being bitten by ants and things like that. I just got comfortable with that. So I expected both things. I expected it to be beautiful. I expected it to be fascinating, but I also expected... There were times that in the tall, beautiful, lush grass, there might be snakes. Mm. Or if I'm going to climb this amazing tree and have some fun, I might get bitten by siafa, which are called like like their driver ants, safari ants. So for me, that connection just was always there. What happened is when we moved to Austria, I disconnected, definitely. I was a teenager with the Walkman, Sony Walkmans and my headphones and that old. <laughs> and, mm. um, and also, but it's also I didn't have the search images for things. So I remember... Like one of the first winters there, my parents, actually, I don't remember this. It's a story I'm told about myself where they were trying to point out a building, this day as my parents, 
And they're like, oh, it's that house there with, see, there's that tree. And I couldn't see the tree. And it was because it didn't have any leaves on it. So my search image for a tree, because mm-hmm. trees in the tropics never lose their leaves or rarely, depending on species, but I'm not going to hung up on that. But I didn't have the search image for the kind of birds that you get in Austria versus a very colorful sort of flamboyant sort of birds that you get in East Africa. So I just didn't see it. I've also heard you say that you've you'd felt a need to make the world a better place from a young age. Now, I think most kids at a certain point have, in the rites of passage, have a sense that there's a, they have a role and a purpose in life to, to improve the world. But where do you think that came from? And, and I understand that you spend a lot of time outdoors, but why do you think it did become focused on environment and nature? So... So I'm taking a deep and, and breath I'm because... And I'm, also, yeah. I'm, I'm also just going to throw into that because I spent a lot of time outdoors when I was growing up as well, but it was before there was an awareness of the environment. I mean, I can remember probably my first job when I was working in Aberdeen uh, in Scotland before I got into advertising as a salesman for Kellogg's, my first ever job out at university. Mm-hmm. I became aware of very much about the green movement and... I was reading about food naturally as a cereal company and very aware at the time of acid rain and what was happening with the environment. And Jonathan Porritt was the guy who was behind, uh, it wasn't Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth. And I became Friends really of the into Earth, that's that. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that's the first time I became environmentally conscious. Up till then, there wasn't the information pre internet as well. And I don't think there was an environmental consciousness. So I've been intrigued to understand what it was that triggered your environmental consciousness okay so that's a big question there's a lot there just um just trying to come at it from a couple of different angles so i can tell you a couple of exact moments of Mm. when like something twigged in me so the first one which um i've told a a number of times is so my mom worked for the UNEP for the United Nations Environmental Program. And I'm guessing there must have been childcare issues in some of the school holidays because she would take me into work with her. And the UN complex in Nairobi is still exactly in the same site, an area called Gigiri. And it's, it's, it's a very big kind of area that the, the complex kind of sprawls across and it's in this beautifully landscaped gardens and there's sort of streams and stuff. So I, I actually, it was quite a nice experience. I used to really look forward to going to work with my mom and her office is right on the ground floor. So I could literally go out and play outside and I would go, there's a couple of like ponds and streams and this kind of landscape garden. I'd go there and watch the dragonflies and the tadpoles. It's all amazing. But then in my mom's office, there was a poster. So bearing in mind, this is what, late 70s, right? Early 80s. And there was a poster um, on the wall in her office And it was of a single, a giant single drop of water. And in the drop of water, in this kind of very 70s, swirly writing, it said, every drop counts. And it was like, for me, it was literally, I remember staring at that. And I guess something in me must have just gone, oh, right, okay, all is not well in the world because there's this issue here. So... If I'm honest, it was literally because of a lot of the leaflets, pamphlets, posters and the language I was surrounded with when I was at my mum's work that things like deforestation and desertification, water conservation, these, these words just became part of my awareness from a very young age and what they meant as well. 
so that was the kind of like the the cerebral thinking side of it all. But what I think as well, and this is probably even more true today than it was when I was a kid, is that in the in countries like Kenya and the global south, as as that part of the world is referred to now, I think there's less of a buffer than what one has in Europe or the States. There's less of a buffer between what happens in the environment and what happens in your home. And growing up in Kenya, there was immediate feedback in terms of water shortages literally meant like you turn on the tap and nothing would come out. And I remember, for example, there's an area that we used to drive through on my way to school. And there was one season where they'd start, you know, slowly more and more trees had been felled. So the next rainy season, there was this massive landslide. And there was it was small like houses that had been sort of built up along this hill, they all went with it. So for me, there was no disconnect between when I talk about being into nature and concerned about extinction and being an environmentalist, like it is absolutely 100% wrapped in with how it affects people. Mm-hmm. I just never have separated the two because I grew up with that. And I think as well, like to me, environment and nature and exploitation, it's just, I saw it like right from a child. So I said where we grew up was on this like old coffee plantation. So part of it had been developed into this housing estate where we lived, but mm-hmm. the rest of it was still in, and is still today a coffee plantation. And when I was a kid, I remember this school run that I was on, my dad was taking me to school. And in the morning, what we would see every day were the workers going to the coffee plantation and they would, they would bust in. I say bust in. They were taken in by trucks, these big like open flatbed trucks. And everyone would stand on the back of the truck and hold on and they'd be driven into the coffee plantation like that. And on one of the school runs, I was sort of sat in the back seat and my dad just out of nowhere just started tried, tried to distract me. He wanted me to look out the left-hand side of the car. And because it was just so random, I didn't because I, 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 could, I could tell he was trying to distract me from something. And I saw what he was distracting me from, which is one of these trucks had turned up over, upside down and over, overturned, um, right, with all the workers on it. Oh, no. So when you see that as a child and you think, like, when I say that I don't like seeing things that are unfair, that's what I get at. Mm. Like, I deeply feel that. And that was just one of a number of experiences growing up. And frankly, like I know a lot of people in, in, any, in any environment where you're growing up and you're up against the people that are being exploited and the people that are being marginalized, you're going to see that. Yeah. It happens all the time and it's still happening. And that is something I just, I, yeah, I can't get away from that feeling. And it totally informs what I do. And it, for me, like what's what's encouraging at the moment is that I feel that I followed a track that took me much more down the nature path. Yeah. And I say you could, I you, could have like, gone down the, you could have gone down the social injustice route. And yeah. And I think it's because I, I was somehow through discussions, I started to feel like it was naive to say that I wanted to make the world a better place, that I was naive to think that, that the world is, that the world could be a fair place, that, ah, you know, this is just the way of the world. The world isn't fair. 
Those are the things that I was felt like, okay, well, the, what can I, how can I fight this? And I feel like almost annoyed at myself for not questioning that more. But mm -hmm. for whatever reason, I, I, I didn't. I felt, okay, the way I'm going to do this is by making films about the environment and, and, and getting people to, to connect the dots slowly from the things that they care about and the things that are maybe a, a, a easier to access. So a lovely film about the wonders of the natural world is an easier way to access this heavy, heavy stuff. But again, like bringing it back to that word liminal, I'm, I'm transitioning to thinking that, nah, <laughs> I've given this a long enough shot. I'm going to go straight at this now. So yeah, that's, so that I, I'm not kidding around when I say I, I've always felt that. Mm -hmm. Just a, an aside, you haven't ever made any films about rhinos, have you? No, I have. You know what? Here's an irony. I have yet to make a film in Kenya, let alone a film about rhinos. When I first started working in natural history films, I assumed that because I had a Kenyan passport and I spoke, you know, good enough Swahili, that the first place they'd send me would be Kenya to make films. Mm. But no, I didn't. I ended up making films about European wildlife and now British wildlife. So, um, yeah, dropping hints here. <laughs> no, no, no. The reason I mention it is um, I talked to you about, I'm always thinking about previous guests and the connections. And you might be, I don't know if we talked last week about Water Bear. Yeah, yeah, the water bear. So network, water yeah. bear, this platform, and Dan McDougall is uh, on mm -hmm. the board of advisors for it. But also Lorna Davis, who's a South African woman who was the CEO of Danone USA and helped them become part of the B movement, B Corp movement. Mm. Is a mm -hmm. big environmentalist, so she's connected to B Corp and advising companies on their environmental strategies, and is big into social justice and the environment. And when I was talking to her recently, she said, Mark, I just want to make, and she's involved with Rhino Conservancy, she said, I think water bear is great, but they need to have film about rhino conservation and rhinos. And I thought, oh, well, maybe there's a connection here. You're a filmmaker and you've got connections. So you never know. So I might do a little connection with Lorna. It could be well, good. I, I, yeah, I'm always grateful for that. <laughs> and, 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 she, and she's an extraordinary woman as well. So you're, before we get into this, this transition um, period that you're facing and you're in right now. Just talk a bit about your educational life and the focus on and why you picked biology of all things, because you could have gone in many different directions. And how and so how on earth did you end up in Bristol from, from <laughs> of all places yeah. from Vienna? <laughs> You know what? <laughs> That's a dang good question. Um, <laughs> okay, so I, I, you know what? So this is this is how it played out. So I'm in Austria. I've, you know, decided to just embrace this whole new life. Like I said, as a survival strategy, what was the option? And yeah, give it, you know, a few years of being in Austria, and I was just loving the whole like performing arts. So I spent. You know, a lot. I did loads of sports too. I just did everything basically. I, I was just a busy kid, and the opportunities that were available to me were unbelievable. And I knew it then. I, I just knew it then that I was so lucky to be going to the school that I was going to. We had incredible facilities, and it was really looking back. I think my mum's decision to move us to Austria was in part so that we could get that type of education which was by virtue of her working for the UN. And we had these ex living there under expatriate terms. We went to this international school, which was, yeah, just incredible. So I 
did everything I possibly could. Mm-hmm. Every sport, every club, every school trip, I signed up for literally as much as I could. So my time in high school, secondary school was really focused on performing arts. I, w- I did other things too, mainly because we were doing the International Baccalaureate. So for, for UK listeners, it's so different to what, what people do in the UK with the A-levels, where you pick your three subjects and it's all very focused on what you're going to be. The IBs do the opposite of that. They're like, you're going to be a well-rounded human by the time you finish this. And I'm a real, I, I really liked the IBs and I like them now. So I was doing sciences, but I was doing English literature and I was doing history and I was doing performing arts and arts. So I, by the time I got to the point where I was looking at university and what I was going to do, I really wanted to go to drama school, but I was really good at sciences as well. And I got this bursary to go to do biology. And I, it was this feeling of, well, do the sensible thing. And so I chose biology, but it wasn't like a kind of, oh, I'm going to have to do biology. I was like, oh, hang on, I'm going to do biology. And then when I do that, when I've got my degree, I'll go back to Kenya and I'll work for the Kenya Wildlife Service. And in my head, I was going to spend, live out my life in like a Land Rover bumbling around in the Mara. Like that's a pretty good outcome as far as I was concerned. So um, yeah, eventually applied to a few universities in the UK and... Bristol turned out to be the one by a process of elimination, really. I applied to Edinburgh, but it was like a four-year course, whereas all the English universities were just a three-year course. So I was like, okay, so I'm not doing Edinburgh. I'm definitely not doing four years of of uni. Mm -hmm. And then the option was Imperial College in London, which was pretty tempting, but London's such an expensive city to to be a student in. I was like, that's not going to happen. But why why the UK and not Austria or Germany? What was the connection? I, just... It's probably language, actually. Although I was, I was pretty fluent in German. To I don't, I don't think I was fluent enough to do a degree in in German. I don't know, actually. God, no one's ever asked me that. <laughs> so really yeah. random. No, but, it doesn't sound um, the way you're discussing your parents and their heritage. There's any con- obvious connection. I had to a the lot UK. of family in Britain, though. I had a lot yeah. of family in Britain. I still do. So I'd already travelled back and forth to Britain a lot over the years. So I felt familiar with it. And it's a bit like American culture by virtue of like, you know, sitcoms and stuff. You you absorb a bit of the culture. It doesn't feel that alien. And language, that was was a big common factor. Mm -hmm. I felt most comfortable speaking English and learning in English. So that made sense to me. Mm. So what year did you land in in Bristol? 1992. (laughs) Yeah, I remember saying bye to my parents like at the airport in Vienna. I had just one suitcase and one trunk and I was so ready to go. I think about how cold hearted I was when I left home and I'm like, oh my gosh, my kids are going to do the same to me because what goes around comes around. I remember my parents saying bye to me and I gave them hugs. I was I, I didn't even look back. I was so excited to leave home and finally be out in the world. I used to have this really funny little fantasy when I was still in high school where I was like on a Greyhound bus and nobody knew where I was and I was just going to someplace even I didn't know, you know. I had that thing, like I really just wanted to go. So when I got that ticket, I was out the door. And not because I didn't love my parents. I had a really good and happy home life mostly. So it wasn't like anything that bad to run away from. I just was ready 
for the world. And I landed in Heathrow Airport, and these are the days where you could still smoke on airplanes and buses. And I'm not proud of this, by the way, but I did smoke back then. And um, and I remember getting on the bus and just feeling so grown up, sort of like puffing away in the back of the bus, <laughs> and then getting to Bristol and. Yeah, I can remember very vividly. It was it was a really exciting time. And then arriving in Bristol and realizing, I imagined that it was going to be full of like students with berets protesting and Bristol <laughs> University wasn't quite like that, you know. <laughs> so slightly disappointed I finally landed, but you know, again, I just moved on and made made the most of what they did have to offer, so. Yeah. So an interesting period in Britain between sort of I suppose 92 uh, and 96 and the rise of what at the time, I think around the latter part of the Conservative rule, post-Thatcher and John Major, the nation going through a sort of a big transition. Were you thinking at all at that point about having a career and being based in the UK? And No, no, not at all. You were both heading back to Kenya, but... My plan was I was going back to Kenya to, yeah, like I said, to work at the Kenya Wildlife Service. By that point, my mom hadn't quite retired. She was close to retirement age. And my parents had no doubt in their minds they were going back to Kenya when she she was done. So, and by that point as well, my brother was making plans to go back to Kenya. He went to university in in Washington D.C. So we, on you, yeah, sort of. I think sometimes people imagine that that when people leave Africa or they never go back. But my family, we were we were really like we're going back. So the thing that meant that the, the reason I didn't go back is I met my husband. My, well, he was my husband at uni, but I met the man who was to be my husband, who was English. And that kind of was like, okay, all change again. You know, <laughs> Here's a new plan. So that's, that's actually the main reason why I ended up staying, actually is the only reason I ended up staying in the UK was because I fell in love, you know? <laughs> and yeah, so it was... Initially, like once I graduated from uni, I, I I think I'd sort of went through what a lot of people go through, sort of like the kind of the doldrums. I didn't quite know what I was going to do with this degree. And I, I mean, I got a job pretty quickly, but nothing to do with my degree. And um, I did a lot of temping jobs and all that kind of stuff. And also there was this kind of, well, where am I going to live? And we, we moved around quite a bit. But eventually we settled back down in Bristol and that was when I started thinking, well, I've walked past this building, the BBC Natural History Unit, for three years on my way to and from lectures. And isn't that that place where they make those films with David Attenborough? And maybe, just maybe. It was like so many things, like the, the, the kind of things I've gone after. People like, oh, that's very competitive. A lot of people want to do that job. But I just did the... What what I was told to, this is how you get into the business. You do lots of work experience, you make lots of cups of tea, you work as a runner, and you just, that willingness to learn. And I think that the the ability to adapt and the the expectation that things aren't going to be the same or that the plan is never going to be the plan really helps in media and in filmmaking, and particularly in natural history filmmaking. It's your, your, your subject are like wild animals that and and seasons and things that we have no control over so by its very nature it's an unpredictable ecosystem working environment to to be in so i think the the ability to adapt is really there already for me so it helped i wanted to ask you do you do you see yourself as a storyteller 
I like telling stories. <laughs> and I think in stories, I find it easier to relate ideas, I guess, with stories rather than trying to just tell the concept. And I, I like hearing stories, love hearing stories, people's stories. I, I'm like a collector of people's life stories. I will, I, I just love biographies, biopics of, of any, of almost anybody, because I just constantly, I love the, um, what I see as the sort of patterns that seem to be common in, it's like a human kind of trait, this, this inevitability that you're going to encounter loss and you're going to encounter struggle and and then what do you do with that and how do you overcome and how do you triumph and and it's I guess why people have through the ages and still do seek out spirituality or religion of some kind because it's to me it's it's not something you figure out once and then it's done it's you constantly go back to square one almost with each new challenge and each new chapter, there's, I mean, it's, it's almost dis disheartening to say, but I think it's true. It almost gets harder, not easier, but you hopefully with, with luck and grace, you, you have your strategies to pull you through each time. So I'm really, I love, I love stories for, for that. You said that you only ever worked on things that you cared about and you're clearly passionate about the environment, uh, about social justice and racial justice and all these big movements are sort of converging, and it feels like we're in a transitional period. Uh, I've heard you say that racial and environmental justice are inextricably linked. If we're going to solve these problems, first we need to believe that change is possible, because um, because without belief, there's no adequate action. No adequate action is going to take place. And it does feel like we're in this unusual moment in time where forces are pulling us in different directions. So I'd love to get your perspective on these conflicting pressures of what we've experienced in the last year. And if you are in this period of, of change, of change in your life, what role do you think you're going to play? And where will you focus your energies? So the thing that I... The, the word that I am really missing right now in, in all of everything that's going on is humility. I, yeah, I absolutely believe like that the, the lack of humility in the face of say a sequence of molecules that have showed up and just kicked our asses is breathtaking. I just think, wow, we still aren't getting the message here. I, I keep looking at the way things are unfolding. And I don't for a second pretend that I, if I was like given hand at the reins, I'd be pulling us out of this mess any better than anyone else. But I do still find it in interesting that there's still this sense that we're going to just work harder and think harder and just build more and, and we're just going to innovate our way out of this situation. And I'm not sure about that myself. And this is speaking as someone who has a, a, a great, you know, great faith in science to a certain extent. I just, I just think that surely like the innovation, <laughs> the constant innovation, innovating is what's got us into this mess. 
I mean, viruses have always existed. Diseases have outbreaks is is part of the the natural cycles that we live in. For for things to occur at this scale and at this frequency, maybe not so much because there's more people. There's more more people in a more connected world. There's more people in a more connected world that's more impoverished in terms of biodiversity. So all these these factors mean that viruses have more opportunity to jump barriers, species barriers, and then be spread very quickly. So for me, just on that count alone, I would I would love to for, for people to go, wow, this is a good time to remember that no matter how clever we are, a bunch of molecules, a little sequence of molecules can like bring the world to standstill. I feel humbled in, in that, in the face of that, you know, thought. So Humility is something that the moment maybe because it's all about being badass and um, calling people out. And I just, you know, there's a place for that for sure. But, you know, humility in certainly to powers that are greater than us and to recognize that their power is greater than us. And I just mean nature um, would be, I don't think it would hurt basically to just take a little step back and you know I use this expression you know sort of like fall back in line take our seat in the classroom of life and just and just listen and pay attention to what is being asked of us right now. Can I just interject on that point uh, on the point you make there Um, the journalist Paul Mason the Guardian journalist um, and also writer he's written that book uh, 2015-16 about post-capitalism and his recent one, I think it's called Clear Bright Future, covers post-capitalism and the environment, artificial intelligence, and sort of brings it all together and argues for essentially radical humanism. Or Well, I think he's a Marxist and he calls it um, humanistic Marxism. But he makes a case for an alternative path to the one we're on uh, and argues that uh, we are we face unsustainable growth because from an environmental standpoint, we just can't continue to maintain the levels of growth without having some form of catastrophic climate impact. Yet, on the other side, there's an argument that every developing nation whose resources have been exploited to fuel the growth of the first world economies and countries, that they've got a right now to develop as nations and as people to access the benefits of economic growth and capitalism. So there's clearly a bit of a tension going on there as these countries develop, these emerging nations develop their own economies. Are they being denied the right to do this in the name of sustainable development and building circular economies? But here we are as we've hit this point where progress has led us to this point. And as you say, nature, a tiny virus, can stop us in our tracks. I, I, I struggle with that. I struggle with that argument of we're denying developing countries the right to progress because I think when people look at developed nations up until very recently, what what isn't being seen clearly is the 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 progress the the, the the lifestyle, the, the standard of living, the infrastructure, all that has been created out of extraction and exploitation of the rest of the planet. So 
it simply is not sustainable. It simply cannot work. Like we, it's, it's not like everyone in the global north will carry on living this great life and then everyone in the global south will come up, come up to that level it, because that the global north only achieved this by extracting and exploiting the global south. And so when, for example, I've heard this being said in Kenya, well, when particularly around the tensions of the sense that conservation movements and NGOs are still very colonialized in Kenya. So there's this thing that people say, oh, well, you've already deforested your country and now you we can do that here. And I'm like, no, they, Britain didn't achieve what it did simply because it like exploited its own resources and got rich. Britain exploited its resources, exploited everywhere else and then got rich. It's not going to add up. And I, I, one of my favorite books is by Yuval Noah Harari. It's called Sapiens. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Yeah. And he makes the point after taking us through one of the most brilliant processes of human evolution that comes from a historian, not a biologist, by the way. He makes a point at the end of the book after all these revolutions, the cognitive, the agricultural, the industrial, the, the biotech, are we any happier? And it, I feel like we are chasing something, like when I say we, the global south, are chasing something that isn't even going to, this progress, is it really progress? And I know there's going to be like a whole bunch of people who just completely disagree with me, and that's okay. But, you know, I there was that fantastic moment that was captured by one of the Black Lives Matter activists, Kimberly Latrice Jones. I don't know if you've seen it. No. It, it went viral on social media sort of through in the wake of George Floyd's murder and all the protests. And she 100% nailed, you know, what that tension, the, the struggle in America. And she said it was like, Imagine you're playing this monopoly. I'm not even going to try it. She's, she does it so well, but she, she uses the analogy of a monopoly game. And she talks about how, imagine you're playing this game of monopoly, but you know, you're not allowed to have any of, of the, the, the money. And she goes, and you get to play that round all these times, but not just that. You make the money, you've got to give that money to someone else. And right at the end of it, she says, so if this is how it is for us, how can we ever win, right? And I was, I was with her all the way. And then I just thought to myself, but hang on a second. We never wanted to play Monopoly in the first place. It's like we are caught up in a system that is simply not going to, it's not sustainable. We've already hit that point. Mm -hmm. The climate is definitely telling us we've hit that point. In amongst all the COVID reporting, this is the likely to be the hottest year on record. There have just been global heat records being set almost every week this year. The Arctic sea ice has melted back to its furthest extent ever. It remained open until the latest it ever has been in recorded history. An area called the Laptev Sea, which was it's it's the area what's what's called the, the birthplace of the sea ice. So yeah. every at the beginning of each winter, it freezes over, and it usually starts freezing over towards the end of September into October. It was still open in November, and that's never been recorded in history. I mean, this this there's an, a great account meteorologist who who has a fantastic 
way of explaining all of this, but the the climate chaos that's been predicted is already happening. We are seeing Arctic amplification already. And, um, you know, so this, in a sense, to be honest, I almost think we're past the point of debating these things. Like we are, this is the point where we really need to act. We are just touching into a 1.5 degree rise already. Mm-hmm. And the wording of the Paris Climate Agreement was well under two degree increase. We do not have much wriggle room left. No, I, I mean, if you look at the fashion industry, uh, the second biggest pollutant on the planet, they've acknowledged themselves that they're down at least 50% off from even just hitting the target of plus 1.5 degrees um, in terms of the global goals. And if this is the decade of action that the UN called for, if an industry themselves acknowledge that they're off target, we need significant corrective action to take place. And if COVID is this great pause and, as you say, has humbled us, we're at a point where we need... Uh, we, we're in need of a great reimagining of our of systemic change in the way we think about progress, the way we think about our economies, the way we think about our overall global economic system. Where do we go from here? We need someone or we need some people to come together to just create a new idea because I'm not seeing anyone out there proposing anything radical. So when we... Um, so when the next World Economic Forum, Davos, happens, um, uh, do we just expect some return to business as normal, business as usual, as economies get going again? Uh, because if there is this so-called decade of action, it feels more like inaction. I mean, I don't want to seem to be painting a dystopian view of the future, but I'm not currently that hopeful we can avert this climate catastrophe that's predicted. Okay, so the stories... <laughs> type of story so I like to this is what I like to tell because it's it's a really really gosh it's a great childhood memory for me so I was telling you earlier you know my dad used to love taking us out to see wildlife and all that kind of stuff and Nairobi the capital city has got has well I, I say it has a national park the city was built in an area that then they they fenced an area that became Nairobi National Park it's not a kind of fenced in zoo. It is literally, it's, it's, it's open on two sides, I think it is. So it's fenced in as it comes towards the city, but it is a naturally stocked park as in terms of the wildlife. So we were, so I can't remember how old it is. We had, we, my dad was a mechanic. So we always had a different car and I look back now and I was like, oh, I wonder why that is. Anyway, for this particular story, we were in a Suzuki Jeep, like old style thing. And they were, like they were like sort of tin cans basically on on a chassis <laughs> sorry suzuki but you know it's true they were back then anyway and we drove into the park it was just towards the end of the rainy season so all the vegetation had grown up quite tall it was very thick very green and we were going down this like little track and very slowly because you're there to see wildlife so you're not going to be like zooming through so we're picking our way through and my dad had this way like a lot of people you know who used to looking you know going on driver guides and for wildlife and stuff where you kill the engine almost immediately as soon as you see something of interest and then you bring the car to a stop so that everything goes quiet so as soon as dad killed the engine you know something good there's something exciting or you know just what is it what 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 so and we were in a really thick part of the this kind of scrub. So the thorn bushes were right up against the car. And just as we pulled to a standstill, there was this enormous 
butt, basically. It was a rhino. And and it was grazing with its head deep in this thicket, thicket. And so we could see its butt and we could hear it munching. And it was just pin drop silence, except for maybe some crates, some of the, the birds and the, the rhino munching. And it was so close. I mean, I literally could have reached out and just touched it. And it was like just that breathtaking moment of, wow, we're so close. This is an amazing thing. And then from the other side of the vehicle, the side that we no one was looking, this like, oh my gosh, it was literally like one of the loudest things to this day I have ever heard. And it was just this like snort and like fury of dust and horns. And it was another rhino that was clearly not happy about our presence there and was mock charging at the vehicle, which if it had decided to go, we would have been knocked over for sure. So dad sprung into action. We reversed out of that situation for reasons I still don't understand. But anyway, we didn't go forward, we reversed out. And ever since that experience, I always had this thing of when everyone's looking at one one thing, like whether there's a bird mm. that everyone's excited about, I always do a really quick scan behind me and around me just to make sure there's nothing or else that I'm missing. And I sort of, I use this story because I feel like that's what we're like about these events. Like we can only ever seem to focus on one thing and hold one big kind of um, challenge in our minds. And for me, the rhino is like my sort of little go-to story to remind myself that it's it's never the thing you thought was going to happen. It's never the thing that you saw coming. You know, and to me, I just think it's it's amazing that we are now so focused on COVID that no, I mean, I'm sure there are people whose job it is. I really hope there are people whose job it is to be thinking what else could go wrong. But I think that's where I keep saying there's this humility that we really need to apply to the situation. There's a part of me that goes, I don't know if we can think our ways ourselves out of this situation. COVID, climate, any of it. I mean, clearly we have to apply ourselves. But this may be something that is going to be um, handed down to us as, as, a, as we're going to be made to do this. And to a certain extent, I feel that's what's happening with COVID. There's a lot of hope around the vaccine that, that will be, and, and certainly vaccination in the past has been successful with some diseases, polio, wild polio only exists now in, I think, Afghanistan, smallpox famously. So we know we can do it. However, at the moment, what I'm noticing is countries where there is, I don't know how you measure humility, but let's just say where it, there's an apparent lack of humility are the countries that have been hit the hardest by COVID. Every time we try and speed up and get busy again, we get our asses kicked by COVID. And that's what's happening right now. So again, I place more faith in natural solutions to everything, all these challenges. The reason being that there is already like an inherent level of complexity in natural systems that um, are unrivaled in human systems. And that complexity is its resilience. That complexity is the source of um, the sort of like infinite num number of permutations of solutions. And, and that's the, that to me is the beauty of nature. It's complexity beyond what we can imagine. And we, this more and more are beginning to appreciate that we don't even exist really as 
sort of entities as species. There's a famous kind of quote now, which is based on the idea that every species is actually an amalgamation of lots of different species working mm -hmm. together, and that the human body actually has more bacterial cells than it has yeah. human cells. The idea that, you know, the, 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 the tree of life, that life has evolved uh, along this like one thing, sort of stem, sorry, trunk, where all life crept up the, the trunk and then radiated out into all these branches. And on the end of each branch is the species proudly sitting on their own. And actually, that's not true at all, because at the tips of the branches, all these species, not all, but, you know, the, the branches merge back again together. So no species exists on its own. Like everything needs everything else. Mm -hmm. And the more connections, the more dots, the thicker and more complicated this matrix is, the healthier it is. If we eat into that and wear away and and hack away at this diversity and hack away at this complexity, we are losing the seeds, the post, the potential to pull ourselves out of ecological and climate crisis. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I had a the conversation in the early start of the the virus. It was at a party here in New York, and we were talking about covid saying if you look at it from a malthusian standpoint this is nature self-correcting and if we need anything to slow down our carbon emissions stopping us flying dialing back industries it's going to have that sort of impact but i look at the the data and we've only seen a six percent drop in co2 emissions because of covid so far but i do go along with you and i do believe that there is some for this is nature correcting and i felt more optimistic i think after watching the documentary on netflix recently called kiss the ground with woody harrelson and it's based on project drawdown the book that was written and the core belief in it is its soil is at the core of our solution and if we can if we can particularly in terms of the global food industrial complex if we can fix soil erosion and fix the quality of soil in the ground Everything else is sort of connected to it. And I couldn't get into explaining it, but it's a, anyone that is listening, watch that or certainly get Project Drawdown. And it's easy to do. The solutions to our crisis, our climate crisis, are there for us. And it's not going to take necessarily huge corrective measures that we think it might. There's some very simple solutions and soils at the heart of it. Well, yeah, um, I mean, it, uh, to me, there's, a, there's the... The carbon cycle is actually, the concept is very simple, that basically the more life there is, just total biomass of life, both actually alive, but also the dead and decaying kind of bodies and, and remnants of what was alive, the more there is, the less carbon there is in the atmosphere. And essentially that cycle has been reversed in the last 200 years since the industrial revolution so the kind of all that all the kind the sum total of the life that's been trapped in the earth as coal mostly has just been returned back to the atmosphere so to me the, the fix isn't about building more machines and building more of anything frankly other than more life so it, it, soil is, is a big part of that, and that film was great. I think a big element that was missing in that film was that this is not new. The science has caught up with indigenous knowledge around this. Yeah. 
-hmm. And even like in the famine in Ethiopia, what people understood was that to get through that the, the famine in the 1980s, that seeds were, were the, a seed bank was formed because the understanding was that if they lost the, the archive, if you like, of the sort of plants that had evolved in that habitat, in that ecosystem, that were supremely adapted for growing in, in the kind of local environment, that if they lost everything, they would lose the seed to pull themselves out once the famine was over. Mm-hmm. So again, the recognition there was that there was some ancient, and it sounds a bit sort of like hokey and mystical, but it is. It's simply old knowledge that's been acquired intuitively over many generations. And the knowledge is, is, is both the people who know this and also the kind of natural knowledge that the, you know, the seeds for life are literally in the seeds of those plants. And if we lose those plants, if we lose veteran trees now, we're not just losing the one oak tree, we're losing the oak tree that supports a unique community of microbes and fungus. And all of that is almost like the, the kind of the, the blueprint to pull us back out of this situation again. So it is, for me, there, it's a shame that we, that, not, that we don't see the solutions like that, that it's already there. We already have the solutions. We simply need to get out of the way and, and let life start recolonizing vast swathes of the planet that have been cleared. I mean, one of the things that I see and have noticed over just 30, 40 years is that where you would see the land, look, the contours of the land have become almost like digitized into kind of patchwork of fields. Yeah. And, and that's happened. It's, 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 I've seen this been demonstrated a lot from satellite images, like whole kind of landscapes have been sort of digitized into sort of neat rows and squares of crops. And to me, that represents um, an erasing of, of a natural system. But what's really, and this is where there's genuine hope, is that there are pockets where things have been naturally regenerated, rewilded, or sometimes a managed recovery. And what's extraordinary is how quickly nature can bounce back. Yeah. 20, 10, 20 years, 30 years. And it's absolutely stunning what can happen. So I have every faith that a natural solution is possible. It's just whether we, we want to believe it or not, and whether we want to adopt a system that favors that over investing in more innovation. So where are you going to focus your energies over the next five years? Oh, my God, I never think in five years. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, especially now, at five, the moment... Five months. <laughs> this is the liminal person, remember now, when you're kidding. Yeah. Um, no, I am um, right now. What I'm really interested in is how to pull. So, all what I call this like high altitude, like I'm up in the sky doing all this like thinking, mm-hmm. which all sounds really good. And I get, get to the end of it and I feel quite pleased with myself because I think I sound quite clever. And then what happens, I'll get to the end of the day and I. I was going to say land is more like a face plant back into my actual life in my home 
And I think 2020 this year for us, home has become a really significant thing. It's taken on a whole new meaning. We're working from home, or not all, but many of us are. Some of us had to stay home. Some For some of us, that's been a safe place. For some people, it hasn't been a safe place. It's demonstrated inequity in the home, all kinds of you know challenges. And I, I sort of really have started to, because I've been forced to be at home for much more than ever before, I've started to really make the connection between all this big, heavy thinking and thinking like, okay, now we got to actually live this, you know, and how does that work? And actually this is, and I'm talking way beyond, I'm going to start recycling more and I'll switch to a green energy provider. I mean, mindset wise mm-hmm. how am i actually going to live this future that i believe you know i need to live in order to make to create a habitable climate and planet for my children and their children and other people's children and i've so i'm sort of it, it's almost like trying to work out why why there's it just doesn't run through in a very clear way i think from policy making to campaigners and activists, there's there's that sort of how, why isn't this quite working? Why isn't everyone freaked out by what we're, this existential crisis we're being faced with? Why is it that even when people get the information and are freaked out by the existential crisis, that their behavior doesn't change? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm like, I wonder what's going on in the home. Because that is actually where the bulk of all decision-making and behavior goes on that impacts the planet. And and to me, it's almost like we're missing something. And I think about like my, one of my earliest environmental heroes, a Kenyan woman called Professor Wangari Mathai. And she started a movement in Kenya called the Green Belt Movement. It was a grassroots movement to plant trees. Mm-hmm. And she had... She was born in the 40s, I believe, and sort of received, was educated, and she ended up in the States doing a PhD, and she returned to Kenya, was a lecturer, so real academic. And when she returned to her, like, her, the village where she grew up and where she was born, she noticed that the sort of fabric of family life and the community was starting to come away. It was falling apart. And what what she did, which I, I think was quite extraordinary, was she made the connection between what was going on in people's homes, in their families, particularly because she sat down and asked and talked to women and listened, particularly, uh, more importantly, she listened to the women. So this is particularly like the rural poor in Kenya and just said, what's going on? And they're like, well, you know, we're having to travel further for firewood for water we can't plant our crops anymore in you know around the village we have you know and she made the connection between these kind of hardships in what felt like the kind of humdrum tedium of everyday life she connected that to the fact that trees were being felled at a faster and faster rate mm-hmm. so she worked out that if she could meet these women's needs by planting trees, that that would be this, it would almost couple these two separate issues, apparently separate issues together, 
so that they pulled each other out of the situation. So tree planting went hand in hand with improving the lives of the rural poor. And it's it's extraordinary that this mm. hasn't just been adopted and rolled out everywhere. So for me, it's a real, there's a lot to be learned there. And it's not the only example of that. There are other examples where NGOs have really, and I think the the thing is there's got to be a lot of integrity in that conversation. And I remember listening to one of your earliest guests on on your podcast, Tyreek Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he was, I mean, his story is extraordinary, but the thing that really struck me for, for anyone and your listeners who hasn't, haven't heard him, he was a community worker, correct? Kids for, what was his, his charity called again? Young Chances Foundation. Young Chances Foundation, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And what really struck me was that he, he talked a lot about going to families, literally knocking on doors and saying, what do you need? Mm-hmm. And the thing that stopped me dead in my tracks was he said, I don't work blocked to block I work door yes. to door to door house to house yeah I know and and I just thought wow okay there's something there because he said it he was like people do this to win elections so it's mm-hmm. got to work yeah. and so I'm like wow okay well yeah I need to pay attention to that so that's the realm I'm in and I don't really know what to call it yet other than home, everything about home, whether that's home as in your identity, home as in where you live, home as in our planet, the only one we've got. I'm, I'm sort of working with this word and working with what it means and trying to track back from all this kind of heavy, clever, you know, cerebral thinking, mm, yeah. track back into like, oh, yeah, so how does this work out when I'm doing my dishes <laughs> and all that sort of stuff? So um, we'll see where we go with that. I'm blogging about it and, and just trying to develop the idea. And at the same time, also working with NGOs to see how we can. I mean, I, I'm, I never consider myself to be the person with the solution, but I am a good listener and I'm curious and certainly I like trying to make connections between things mm-hmm. that seem completely disconnected. I find that really fascinating and, and hopefully with, impactful. Are you working with NGOs locally or internationally? Uh, well, a mixture. I'm, I mean, mostly British NGOs, the Wildlife Trusts and a number of organizations like Cool Earth, which is a small but uh, rainforest charity that works with indigenous communities with Mount Kenya Trust. So there's a whole range of organizations, some like really properly local to me where I live in the UK in Cornwall, there's the Cornwall Seal Group. So they're literally a single species charity that work in Cornwall right up to Cool Earth. And I, I, I'm, I'm humbled that anyone thinks that I can actually contribute and make a difference. People out there doing really good work, really mm-hmm. good work. And I think that mustn't be forgotten. So I'm, I'm really just there to be of service, to offer perspective. Because, like, let's face it, if I could fix this, I would, right? <laughs> you know? I'm not holding back for some great moment. <laughs> I don't have the solutions. I don't have the answers. But, you know, I have, I, I do, I definitely like to be an advocate for natural solutions as much as possible. Mm. 
Okay. I'm conscious of your time because I know it's very late there. Can we run through the quick fire questions? You, you go ahead, yeah. Okay. Uh, we start with principles. What principles do you stand by? Uh, just play fair. That's it. Even better than be kind, just be fair. <laughs> well, that would certainly uh, change the world significantly if that was applied and embraced. Mm-hmm. What hard choices have you had to make that were tough at the time, but looking back on them turned out to be the right decisions? I walked away from a ton of money once. And I did because I was warned that if I accepted it, I'd be, I'd never, ever be free from it. And I was worried that I would regret. And I, yeah, I still feel good about that. So, and it's given me the courage to not be afraid to say no, you know, Mm -hmm. to things that aren't right for me. So, yeah, it, it sort of like helped me to, um, believe that I could genuinely be not motivated to to say yes to money just because it was there lovely um aside from obviously environment which is clearly one of the biggest problems we face what other one problem is worth solving oh my gosh I would say the rise of devices is a huge one yeah, social dilemma. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, from from many angles as well, yes, social dilemma in terms... So that's the movie on Netflix. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it is, yeah, to date, the best film I've seen that explains how social media affects our minds and affects our behaviour, both on an individual level and right across society and on a population level. It's frightening. So from that point of view, but also the environmental costs are massive. It's it's the next, the ticking time bomb, as they say, with e-waste, but also extraction of rare earth elements that are required to not, not just for devices, but for all the green technology that's coming out. I worry and that we're painting ourselves into another corner with all of that. So that's why, again, I'm not a big, I'm not, if I had to put my money somewhere to support a, a solution, it would be a natural solution. I still mm-hmm. think that we're not very good at inventing things that don't create more problems. We're very good at painting ourselves into a corner, basically, I think. Good answer. Not even mentioning the mental health impact of it as well, mm-hmm. which is clearly damaging to a us finding solutions to the problems that we face on the broader scale a bit of fun if you had four people you could draw on from history you invite to your dinner a dinner party down in Cornwall who would they be to help you plan this better future okay so Nelson Mandela Mm -hmm. absolutely Mikhail Gorbachev Soviet Union. conversation, yeah. Yep. Well, I figured, you know, we're going to mix it up a bit, don't we? I would also, I was thinking, I I talked a lot about Professor Wangari Mathai. I think she would be someone that I'd want round the table to. That's the Green Belt. The Green Mm -hmm. Belt lady. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah. Funnel dinner party. Okay then. So, um, who's made you reevaluate yourself, or who my does? children? Of course, yeah. One hundred percent. 
every single day. <laughs> yeah. Keep you on your <laughs> toes. Sad. Yep. Um, is there a question no one asks you that uh, you wish they would? Oh my God. No. Is there a question? You know, that's so funny. I should, I should have a great answer for that, don't I? No, do you know, I'm, I'm, I know I'm, I talk a lot and I'm quite forthcoming with stories, but I'm, I kind of find, find it weird talking about myself as much as mm-hmm. this, to be honest. So there's not like something I'm dying to tell someone. Wait, I, I just, yeah, I'm just amazed that, that I can talk this much about myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy with that. <laughs> Grateful to be asked at all. Okay, well, your advice, uh, impossible question. So advice to someone that's about to graduate, looking for work, uh, is about to study, um, might have a big dream, a goal, an ambition, but is being told by people around them, forget it, that's impossible. Um, I think if something, if you can see clearly the path to where you're trying to get to, it's, and I quote, I can't remember where I've seen this, but it's a great quote. It's not a big enough dream for you. So it's almost don't be afraid. It, like you're on the right track if it seems impossible. So yeah, that's what I would say. Okay. I didn't ask you at all about serendipity. Is there any moment in, li- in your life where you can look back and say that was key to the path you're on? <laughs> almost every single one i i feel that's a good answer in itself <laughs> yeah <laughs> i i, I it has, it's taken it's gotten it's only take start that all again it's only the last few years that i can see that i felt like i had so many disparate strands and threads and experiences like at one point i wanted to do performing arts and now i'm working in wildlife and at one point I lived here and then I lived there and, and I was just like, I'm just this mix up and I don't even know how this is all going to come together. And, and I think what happened is I started to recognize that every single life experience has been like, like training me for what I do now. And the transition for me from being a filmmaker that was behind the camera to being in front of the camera and presenting drew on everything right back to being 14 years old on stage I had to go back to some really early experiences to to give myself some kind of sense that I can do this and some of it was really scary particularly the live tv presenting that I started to do and yeah and I really genuinely believe even things that I did when I was six recording my voice onto a little tape recorder and playing it back and falling about laughing <laughs> again to me that was like that there was something there that I could draw on as I as I transitioned into a, a career as a presenter so yeah serendipity is just every single thing okay what is your go-to karaoke song ah <laughs> no. There is literally not one because that's down to moods. And let's just say these are songs I wish I could sing. Natural Woman, Aretha Franklin, If I Ain't Got You, Alicia Keys. God, there's so many. Anita Baker. I don't, I don't know. Stick, I, sorry. Stick with I'd, Aretha. <laughs> actually, if I'm going to stick with Aretha, it would be Angel. I just That's such a beautiful okay. song. Okay. I'm in the process of putting together a, uh, a, a playlist on Spotify for the guests songs so. oh nice 
it'll be fun. We've watched a lot of series during lockdown. Is there anything that stands out that you think people should certainly watch if they haven't? Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm going to just get trashy now. Cobra Kai. <laughs> I just loved it. <laughs> I just I just started I just started I I put I pushed it off for a while and eventually I heard so many people saying it was really good. It is so it good. good. Yeah. yeah. It's good because again, I think it really captures the this transitioning that we're doing where how how does the male how the male psyche move through this transition as a society as we challenge our concepts of like gender and sexuality and all of that stuff and i just i just love the way it gets handled in cobra kai it's so good and so entertaining and there's a lot of i mean a lot of empathy and compassion in that film um and that series i should say it's not just one film but yeah I, and it's just entertaining and man if if you grew up in the 80s, you get it. And if you're just nostalgic for the 80s, because it looks like it was a great time to be a kid, which I think it was, you get it as well. I just think it just takes so many boxes. It's fun. Cool. Okay. Oh, there was a question I didn't ask you. I wanted to. I've s- Go ahead. seen you a, a clip of this ladybird spider. Oh, what? gosh, it, yeah. I, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, you've sort of talked about it a couple of times, but what on earth is a ladybird spider? Okay. Wow. Okay. So this was a sequence that I filmed for Springwatch, I guess, three or four years ago now. And this was, so it's, it's a, it's a species that has almost gone extinct in Britain. It's one of the rarest spiders in the world. And they have this extraordinary life cycle whereby they, the male, the female, the, the adult, they, they develop underground for almost three or four years just slowly growing and it's only after that period that they emerge as adults they don't travel far emerge from these burrows the the male will find the female mate and then the female is will find a new burrow lay eggs cocoon herself in and then those eggs hatch out and then the cycle begins again And most of this happens, of that life cycle happens underground, except this final point when they mature as adults. And as they emerge, the females are just stunning things. They are, I mean, I I know of people, a lot of people don't like spiders, but this species, I promise you, every single time I have shown people that sequence that you're talking about, even the kind of diehard sort of arachnophobes stop and just go, oh, hey, okay, wait, this I got to see. So the females are like these like midnight blue kind of velvety looking things. But the males, which is where the name comes from, the ladybird spider, are just stunning. They have these like bright red bodies with black dots on them. Their legs have got sort of, it almost looks like a kind of Halloween sort of outfit. They, they've got these like white stripes on their legs. They're just stunning things. and And I felt very humbled to be the person who got to see these because they're so rare and I think I say in the sequence that people have will have studied spiders their whole lives and not seen the species Mm -hmm. so to to have that opportunity that I had working with the Ian the the, well the, the team that were behind conserving the species was just one of seriously one of the most amazing things they're beautiful 
Just yeah. beautiful I'll, things. I'll put the clip in the show notes because it was extraordinary. I'd never seen it. And to, yeah. yeah. No, it's it so very to, cool. A, a marvel, to, a marvel to watch. Second last question. What book would you like us to offer our listeners that come up with the best comments on Instagram or on the website? Oh, gosh, I forgot about this. Oh, my gosh. So I read I read Mike Tyson, Tyson's biography this year, which was really, really good, actually. I was not expecting challenging, but challenging is it challenged my views. So I really mm-hmm. enjoyed it for that. And it didn't end the way you want it to, but ended the way it really ended. And I respected that editorial choice. But am I asking you to do that book? I don't know. I don't know. I can't do it. The Way Home is another great book. Sorry? No, that's fine. That's cool. Mike Tyson's biography. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And then final question, who should we interview next? So I was talking earlier about Scott Duncan, Mm -hmm. about how he's a meteorologist and a climate communicator. And I would say he'd be a great person for you to speak to next. I couldn't think of a better person right now to just give the the snapshot of what is going on on the planet, to give a really clear picture of the, yeah, the state of the climate, basically. And oh. he, he's Scottish as well. So <laughs> hopefully Perfect. that'll make you feel at home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dig out my whiskey. Yeah. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, wow. So first of all, thank you for the time you spent on a late at night in, in Cornwall and just acknowledge you. I think you've got this great generosity of spirit. I mean, I've only spoken to you twice now, but it's, you, you sort of exude that. Thank you. And I don't know how to apply the world liminal, but there is something. So many people are certain and so many people are pretty didactic about what they think. Yeah, there's a, a certainty and uncertainty that come across in you. And that uncertainty is a positive. And haven't quite got it straight in my head yet, but I think it's a it's a it's definitely a it's a strength. And I think we need people in the world today that are less certain and as you say, you embrace the fact that we are in this period of transition. And I think clearly you there's a, 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 a humility to you and considering the work you've done and the amazing sort of career you've had to uh, be in this position of acknowledging that uh, the uncertainty as to where you're going but you're experimenting and I think that's fantastic and just the integrity you have in, in your belief in in nature and nature's healing powers I think if more people can be infected with that view of the world then I think we're in a good place so you know I wish you all the best in, in whatever you do over the next five months uh, five, five weeks, five years, whatever, and the work you're doing. And I certainly look forward to watching the progress. And as I've said before, if there's anyone in our network of guests you want us to connect you with, and I will connect you with Lauren and Dan. I know I said I'd do Dan last week. We yeah. can certainly do that because I think although we have to look at things locally, I think we have to look at the connections between people and the diverse mm-hmm. nature of the way we think. But everyone wants to be part of a solution. Everyone is striving for those solutions to these big problems. And I think it's going to come from bringing together diverse people of talent like yourself to solve 100%. these problems. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to give us a rating and a review 
on Apple Podcasts or share with your friends because it helps more people discover us. And we always appreciate it when you share episodes with friends. All that's left to say is this is a Fabrica Collective production. And if you want to find out more about what we do outside the podcast, you can check us out at fabricacollective.com.